Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 31 through this series in the book of Revelation, and the title of our study today is The Seventh Trumpet. And today we're going to look at Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first for the wrath-bearing, sinless substitute, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty in our place and for our sins so that we could, even now, come boldly before the throne of grace, thanking you for the finished and sufficient work of Christ on our behalf. And so, Lord, I I pray today, Lord, that you would open eyes, open ears, that your justice has been fully satisfied in Christ, that there is pardon, there is forgiveness, there is life, both now in Christ and forever with Christ. So I pray, Lord, as we look at this challenging text, that we would be reminded of this great truth and how it's not just for our salvation, it's a matter of a response and worship. So we thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given to us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this time Help us to reflect on the wrath-bearing Son of God, the sinless substitute on Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. We're finishing up this great chapter. Today we're going to look at Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dread to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. It's the reading of God's holy, precious word. During the Christmas season, churches of all kinds are likely to host a performance of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, the grand oretto that celebrates the saving achievement of Jesus Christ. But few realize that Handel's Messiah was originally written and performed for the Easter season. 
The reason for this is seen in its triumphant hallelujah chorus, which celebrates Christ's resurrection and his eternal reign in glory. Handel spoke of his experience in writing Messiah in words that remind us of the book of Revelation. He says, I did think I see all heaven before me and the great God himself. He had this experience not through visions, but through the word of God. Antidotes speak of Handel's being so absorbed during the 24 days in which he composed Messiah that he often forgot to eat. One servant found the composer weeping over the score for the text of Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected of men. Although Messiah was not immediately successful, it came to inspired awe worship for the glory of Christ. In fact, most famously, when England's King George II first heard the Hallelujah Chorus, he sprang to his feet in order to recognize the superior sovereign in the exalted Jesus Christ. The text for the Hallelujah Chorus includes a great cry of Revelation 11.15, when the seventh trumpet blew and the voices of heaven proclaimed the victory of Christ. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as we conclude today, Revelation 11, we finally hear the seventh trumpet, for which we have been waiting since the sixth trumpet blew in chapter 9. When Joshua entered the promised land, it was the seventh trumpet that brought down the walls of Jericho, Joshua 6.20 tells us. And now the seventh trumpet of heaven blows, and the Exodus journey of the church is completed with the return of Christ and the defeat of all of our foes. The cry of victory for Christ's kingdom teaches those of us who are still living in this age before the final trumpet that our prayer for God's kingdom to come will one day fully be answered, Matthew 6.10 says. In Revelation's vision of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, the number seven of each series directs us to what happens not on earth but in heaven. In fact, this is in keeping with Revelation's purpose to show our history from the vantage point of the throne of God above. When the sixth seal was opened, there was a half an hour silence in heaven, Revelation 8.1 tells us. And when the seventh bowl is poured, a loud voice from God's throne will declare, It is done in Revelation 6.17. And when the seventh trumpet is sounded, loud heavenly voices proclaim that Jesus has come into his eternal glory here on earth. Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians 15.52, that the last trumpet will blow at the return of Christ, and the dead are raised for the final judgment. Revelation's seventh trumpet does not describe the details of these events, which are given later in Revelation. It simply announces Christ's return to judge. Most Christians think that salvation ends with our souls going to heaven to be with Jesus. To be saved is to go to heaven when I die. But this, and this is true, this is a true statement. But we also need to understand that history does not end there. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return to reign on a renewed and glorified earth. Jesus comes to the kingdom of the world to establish the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Revelation 11.15 says. So God does not retreat from the earth that he made, but sin marred. Rather, God sent his son to heal the breach of sin, paying its penalty on the cross 
And after gathering his people through the gospel and the age of the church, the Son returns to re resume the sovereignty of God over all creation. Isaiah foretold that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in Isaiah eleven nineteen. In that age, believers will have been resurrected in bodies like Jesus' resurrected body, so that we can dwell with him forever in the renewed heavens on earth, Revelation 21, 1 says. And when the monarchs of England came to Westminster Abbey to be enthroned, they stood before an altar on which Revelation eleven fifteen is written, it says in the King James, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This makes the solemn point that earthly rulers must answer to God's higher authority. This is what King George acknowledged when he stood up and at the same, as the same text was sung in Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. But there is an error, however, in the King James text etched over Westminster Abbey's altar. It speaks of the kingdoms of the world in the plural, whereas John specifies that the kingdom of the world in the singular has been conquered by Christ. Rather than saying that Christ has returned to defeat all the different kingdoms on the earth, the voices speak of a single earthly kingdom that is opposed to Christ. In Daniel's prophecy, he foretold the rising of different kingdoms in succession, each symbolized by a particular beast in Daniel 7, 1 through 8. But in Revelation, there is one beast that is a, a composite of them all. Revelation 13, 1 through 2 tells us. And so all the secular empires are actually one earthly kingdom under the reign of Satan, including the Roman Empire, the monarchs of Europe, Nazi Germany, the communist regimes of Russia and China, the pleasure-seeking humanistic societies of America and the West. And when Christ returns, the kingdom of this world will yield to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Revelation 11.15 tells us. Jesus' resurrection began his saving kingdom on earth, and since that day there have been two kingdoms contesting for the hearts and the minds of mankind. The resurrection kingdom of Christ is the true kingdom, and the one that will endure when worldly kingdoms have been put away. And so Jesus declared after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And while the kingdom of sin and unbelief contest his rule, Christ reigns over a rebellious world, even though hostility to his reign often seems to thrive. The seventh trumpet announces that Christ will then have defeated and put away all opposition to his rule. And the worldly kingdom that now seems so impressive will have perished in his coming. G.K. Card writes, a king may be a king de jour, but he is not a king de facto until the trumpet which announces his ascension is answered by the acclamations of a loyal and obedient people. History is racing forward, and thus we are assured to the culminating event when Christ returns completely overthrows the wicked kingdoms of this world with his own righteous kingdom, and he receives the willing, joyful adoration of his resurrected people. The coming realm is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Revelation eleven fifteen says. In the New Testament, Lord usually refers to Jesus. But here in Revelation, it identifies his Lord and ours, God the Father. The coming kingdom thus involves a joint rule of our Lord and of his Christ, 
God the Father and God the Son reigning in love over their extended redeemed family, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, which Daniel 7, 9-14 speaks of, exercising joint authority, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who was slain, reigning together over heaven and earth, Revelation 5.13 tells us. The Father is Lord of creation and Son is Lord of redemption. Together they rule in power and grace and divine glory. In fact, here the fullness of deity is ascribed to Jesus Christ, who is one with God, the Father, in divine rule. So Christ's kingdom comes as a final realm of history, or we might say after history. Heaven exclaims, he shall reign forever and ever, Revelation eleven fifteen says. In fact, readers of Revelation in the churches of Asia were persecuted under the kingdoms of this world, as are Christians throughout the world today. They and we will not only find respite from all opposition and affliction when Christ returns, but they will experience a permanent end to all evil. G.K. Beale says the final judgment involves a universally decisive defeat of all forces antagonistic towards him, so that Christ's people will be eternally safe, eternally secure, and eternally blessed by him. And seeing that this kingdom is of the Christ, we remember that this title refers to Jesus in his anointed offices. He is not only the great king who will reign in righteousness over his people forever, he is a great prophet who will eternally reveal the glory of God to Christians. But he is the great high priest whose atoning sacrifice eternally secures our salvation. Hebrews 7.25 affirms that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As long as Christ lives, our salvation cannot be overthrown. And so no wonder that Hannah plays words, he shall reign forever and ever, Revelation 11.15, in the Hallelujah Chorus. The very news that Christ's kingdom will replace the world's kingdom so that he can reign forever and ever should inspire all Christians to proclaim hallelujah, that is, praise the Lord. The Apostle John was not only the, not the only one to hear the seven trumpets and the declaration of the kingdom of Christ. We are again here shown the 24 elders who first appeared in chapter 4 as an angelic representation of the Old and the New Testament church, sitting on the thrones that represent the church's inclusion in Christ's reign. When King George II rose for Handel's chorus, these, these elders, uh, whereas King George II rose for Handel's chorus, these elders fell on their faces and worshiped God, Revelation eleven sixteen says. Now these angelic rulers are clothed in white to show the holiness of the church that is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And since they dwell in the very throne room of heaven, they fall at God's feet and say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign, Revelation eleven seventeen says. In fact, in this worship song, the kingdom of Christ announced, is announced by the seventh trumpet and is celebrated. But thanks and praise for Christ's kingdom is rendered to the Father, the Lord God Almighty, in Revelation eleven seventeen. And the word Almighty is a Greek word, pankrator, which means sovereign ruler, a ruler of all. And now the Roman Caesars presumptuously adopted this title, but, but as creator, God is the ruler of all history. In his mercy, he sent the Lord Jesus to reign over a kingdom of grace 
that would be opposed that would oppose the worldly kingdom of selfishness, malice, and greed. John three sixteen says that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, God is now praised for the final victory of the Savior He sent to be born in Bethlehem, who died on the cross and who rose from the grave. It is because of His eternal reign that we enjoy eternal life. Throughout the worship songs of Revelation, God is glorified in his eternity. In chapter 4, in, in verse 8, Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In the song of, of Revelation 1, 17, God is no longer acclaimed as the one who is to come. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, they say, who is and who was, but they do not say who is to come. In fact, the glaring omission here of this statement reflects the fact that with the return of Christ, the seventh trumpet ushers in the eternal glory. Eternity is, is no longer is to come, but it simply is. G.K. Card comments that there can be no future once future, futurity has been removed from the very name of God. This is another reason why we can be sure that this trumpet does not bring in a temporal millennial kingdom, but it heralds the end of history and the eternal state. And where would we expect to read that God is to come, but instead we read, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign, Revelation eleven seventeen. And this is what used to be the future. What is still future now to us? God taking up his almighty power and fully imposing his rightful rule. H.B. Sweet calls this the final and overwhelming display to which all prophecy points. The fact the phrase, taken your great power, is in the perfect tense here, indicating a completed action with permanently enduring effects. Christ's second coming is a decisive event that results in an eternal peace and blessing with God. And while Revelation 11:17 thanks God for Christ's kingdom, verse 18 celebrates the outline of what, what happens in his coming. On one side of Christ's reign is the coming of God's wrath on all evil and evildoers. And on the other side is eternal blessing bestowed on Christians. The like the 24 elders are ushered in white garments cleansed of sin. Daniel foretold this great event when Christ returns in Daniel 12, verse 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. First, the elders sing, The nations rage, but your wrath came in verse 18 of Revelation 11. All through the visions of Revelation, we have shown God's conflict with the unbelieving world from the perspective of history. Revelation 6-9 spoke of the martyrs who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And so this is typical of the, the world's entire conspiracy against the will of God, the reign of God, and especially the word of God. In fact, Psalm 2, 1-2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? It makes no sense, but the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In fact, it's in those words that the entirety of the human race can be charted. The same root word is used for the world, the, the rage and the wrath of God here. Man was wrathful towards God and his Savior, and so God responds in wrath in return. 
And though God had offered salvation, the Jewish leaders conspired with the Roman governor to nail Jesus to the cross and then persecuted his followers. And now in the return of the exalted Christ, God has taken up his reign and justice will be done on the oppressors and the perverters. In order for there to be an eternal punishment of sin, Christ's return signals of the time for the dead to be judged, Revelation 1.18 says. Chapter 20 of Revelation presents this scene in detail, and it begins with a general resurrection of all the dead, not just believers, but all who have ever lived, in order to stand judgment in their bodies before the enthroned Christ. John says this in Revelation 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they've done. All those who are found guilty of sin without Christ's blood to forgive them are thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.15 says. Revelation 11.18 adds that Christ will conclude by destroying the destroyers of the earth. And we remember what happened when Joshua led Canaan, led Israel into Canaan. The first step was the utter destruction of the pagan fortress at Jericho and the cleansing of the evil Canaanites from the land. Revelation 11, 19, 11 through 15 shows Jesus returning to history, riding on a white horse when it says this, In righteousness he judge, judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The destroyers are destroyed forever by the conquering King Jesus so that his land may enjoy blessing and peace forever and ever. A great king not only puts his wicked enemies to the sword, but he also gathers his loyal servants for praise and reward. And so Jesus is coming for the, for the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, Revelation 11.18 says. And now some commentators seek to distinguish between servants, prophets, and saints, and those who fear God's name. It is more likely, however, that all these terms are intended to describe the whole of the people of God. All faithful Christians are servants of Christ who speak forth his word, who live in a holy manner, and give reverence to God and to his name. In fact, the mention of rewards does not mean that Christians have merited salvation, Instead, Scripture is clear that sinners cannot be saved only by the grace of God. What we deserve is the condemnation for all of our sins, but for Christ's sake, through faith, we are saved by Christ himself. The rewards, therefore, reflect Christ's commendation for service offered in response to the grace of God. In his parable of the talents, Jesus spoke of returning to reward his people whose lives have been been profitable to him. Matthew 25, 21 says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And now John is told that these rewards will be given to all Christians, both small and great, Revelation eleven eighteen. And not only is this true, but in the light of Christ's coming and reward, many Christians whose lives were considered great in the world will be seen to be rather small because they made little effort in serving Christ. And yet, how many lives that seem small now will be seen to be great in glory because of humble service to the Lord Jesus? 
And since Jesus will take two opposite actions in the great judgment when he returns, there is an urgent need for us to come to faith in the Lord Jesus now, today. All of us deserve to be eternally punished for our rebellion against God, and those who persist in unbelief, who reject Christ in his word, are certain to receive this judgment. And so how greatly we should fear God's judgment. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, the God who will speak in wrath at the end of history speaks now in his word with an offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible promises that if we confess our sin and believe on Christ, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness in 1 John 1, 7 and verse 9. Revelation 1.19 is not only the final verse of this chapter, it's also the conclusion to the first half of this book. And by mentioning God's temple in heaven, it bookends the vision of chapter 4, which began in the temple throne room of God. The first half of Revelation provided broad but vitally informative visions covering the grand sweep of Christian history. The visions that began in chapter 12 focus in great detail on the enemies of Christ and how Christ defeats them all, most significantly the false trinity of Satan and his two beasts. The seven trumpets and the view of history they provide concludes with God's temple open. Christ is not directly shown, for more of Revelation is yet to be read, but his great Old Testament emblem is revealed. In Revelation 1.19 it says the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. The seventh trumpet having declared Christ's kingdom and the song of praise having been celebrated, the kingdom. The kingdom is now consummated so that the way is open for Christ's people to enter into his glory. The Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred object Old Testament Israel had and it was now lost and consumed during God's judgment on Jerusalem. Many Christians have fervently looked for the Ark of the Covenant, and they want it to resurface, but the Bible nowhere tells us that it will. Does this vision indicate that the Ark was translated out of this world into heaven sometime before Jerusalem's fall? We, we don't know the answer to that. But more likely, the Ark is shown here as a symbol representing God's covenant with his people. The Ark represented, after all, God's saving presence, but the Israelites never saw it. Even those who transported it received special instructions for how to cover the ark without looking on it. And the reasons lay in the holiness of God and the sinfulness of his people. Only the high priest saw the ark once a year when he brought the atoning blood to sprinkle on it for the forgiveness of the nation. And that the ark is now open to sight indicates that the issue of sin has been done away with in the nation. Among the believers in Christ... And when Jesus died, the temple veil that had once protected the ark was torn from top to bottom. The way into the glorious presence of God is now open through Jesus Christ. And now the ark kept the tablets of God's covenant with Israel, and this ark symbolized that God's covenant of salvation has been fulfilled. God told Moses to meet with him at the ark's mercy seat, where the atoning blood was poured over Israel's sin in Exodus 25:22. 
we likewise today meet with Christ through his blood, shed once for all, entering into eternity of glorious fellowship with our covenant sovereign. Christ's saving work has not changed God's holiness. He still flashes lightning, thunders, earthquakes, and hail against those who oppose him in unbelief. In fact, for the enemies of God, the ark was a symbol of dread and woe. That Jericho was carried by the priests who blew the trumpets, enabling the armies of God's people to advance in the power of God. Henry Allwood thus writes, The Ark of the Covenant is seen the symbol of God's faithfulness in bestowing grace on his people and inflicting vengeance on his enemies. How wonderful it is that the trumpet visions in Revelation 8, uh, 8 through 11, like the seal visions in chapter 6 through 7, conclude with reminding Christians that we have nothing to fear because of sin. A judgment is coming that will be unspeakably dreadful on those who oppose God and his word. For the ungodly history will end with the same kind of crash that brought down the walls of Jericho. But Christians, though we are often so conscious of our sin, are caused to gaze on God's Ark of the Covenant, which can be seen only on those who are free from sin. And the message is that we should not fear the return of Christ. The great event of history yet to come and the grand conclusion of the gospel age launched by the resurrection of Christ from the grave. Now, when Handel's Messiah is sung, tradition calls for the audience to follow King George's example by standing for the Hallelujah Chorus. The Bible states that when Christ returns and sets up his throne, all humanity will stand not by tradition, but by divine compulsion for judgment. Only those who have trusted Christ and his blood for his forgiveness of sin are called out of his final judgment. Matthew 25, 34, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The seventh trumpet proclaims that Jesus, who died for sin and rose from the grave, will return in glory to establish a kingdom of righteousness that will never end. This is either the best or the worst news for you. Which one is it for you today? The Bible says that you may be declared righteous in Christ through faith, cleansed by the blood of the cross, and born again by the resurrection power that he alone can provide. While the enemies of Christ must stand in his terrible judgment, the time for believers to stand is now. If the 24 elders who fell on their faces praising God are any indication, we will fall down in adoration of our Savior on that day, casting at his feet crown, the crowns he has given to us all. But now, as we await his coming, we are to stand as those who know what song will be played when history comes to an end. We are to stand for God's truth in our teaching and in the living, standing for his mercy in our gospel outreach, standing for his glory and his kingdom by living holy lives, refusing to swear allegiance to the kingdom of this world and sin. And so if we stand in faith by his grace, we will hear with the joy the trumpets sounding on that day and the voices from heaven crying out in wonder the truth of Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, Nevis Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know, as we land the plane on this sermon today, I want to I focus on one thing. And it's a significant thing here that this worship song demonstrates. And that is, these elders, they 
Verse 16, and the four, 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worship God. And they sing in verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. That's a significant thing because this is a worship song. This is a worship song. Let, let that not uh, fall on deaf ears. In our world today, there are some in the liberal wing of not, they don't profess, they don't believe what we do about Jesus' death in our place and for our sin. But in the liberal wing of Christianity, they minimize the wrath of God. And But we sing gladly of the wrath of God. And here we see these 24 elders, they worship the God of wrath. Now, let me be honest. It's not convenient. It's not cool. It's not hip to sing of the wrath of God. It never has been. And it's never been cool to believe that. But make no mistake about it. The wrath of God was fully satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ. If not, then, then we have no forgiveness of sins. Justice has not been satisfied. And these elders would not be singing the praise of Christ and of his wrath and of his rule. You know, the songs that we sing, they're a reflection of the theology that we believe. It's, I've said this before earlier in our series in Revelation, that it's not only sound expository sermons that we need, it's also rich, biblically drenched, biblically saturated worship songs that we need to sing. Because these truths that we hear from the Word of God, they help form us and shape us. They help us to be ready to respond to God in worship. But our response and our singing of songs is so important. And these elders here in this text praise the, that the wrath of God has come. You know, you may not believe that the wrath of God has come or even been satisfied. You know, all around us today, there are people seeking for justice. We've talked about this repeatedly throughout this, when we talked about the seals, as we talked about the trumpets. And it's an important thing to say because it's not even just people out in the streets that, that are wrathful, that are angry, that are seeking justice. As people in our churches, you know, when, when we don't know that the wrath of God and don't believe that the wrath of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus, we see this out on the streets. People will seek for justice. You know, the thing is, is that Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that eternity is set on our hearts. We, we cannot help but to seek after eternity. 
We are worshipers. And what our energy, what our time, what our value, where the things of our life are going, they reveal what we worship. What we believe and worship, it truly is. It's a reflection of what we believe. It's a reflection of what we believe. The nation raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged. There are even some who believe that, that, that it doesn't matter that I'm going to be judged by God. As if it was just some trite thing, something that's going to, that, that, that's not going to really happen. Because it hasn't happened. They haven't experienced it. They have no idea what it's going to look like. But the Bible is not unclear on these matters. People act as if it doesn't matter because they think it won't happen because it hasn't happened. And I mean, by that logic, we, we could also say we don't know what's going to happen in the next day. But we do know, as long as we're breathing, we're going to wake up. Judgment is just as sure as us waking up. We might breathe our last, but we, our last will be either in heaven or we will come under the divine wrath of God. That's as sure as you can bank your bottom dollar on, friends. That is why Jesus, but this is why Jesus has come. Jesus came under, Matthew one twenty one tells us, Jesus came under the death sentence to offer the pardon and the forgiveness of sins. And this matter is not insignificant because, as I said, the elders are worshiping the wrath-bearing God. He has come. You know, as we'll see in the rest of the book of Revelation, this, this only gets ramped up. This idea of the wrath and the justice of God. God is going to win in the end. He will defeat all of his enemies. That's good news for us. We should take comfort in that. We should take comfort as the people of God in the knowledge that we are no longer under the fury of the wrath of God. But even so, as Christians, Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that God disciplines us for our good. But he disciplines us because he loves us. He seeks our ultimate good. The ultimate good is for us to be conformed, as Romans 8.28 says, into the image of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us it's our sanctification. It's our becoming like Christ. Hearing sound expository sermons is, is vital. It's vital to the health and to the well-being of the church. It's vital to growing in the grace of God. But so is sounds, theologically rich, biblically saturated song like this one that, that testify. Give thanks to our, our text says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Who is and who was. That's, uh, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. I praise the revelation of the, of, of the Lord God. 
Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. There's a, there's a time for judgments. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You know, you might not think that today you're doing much for the kingdom of God, but let me tell you as we land this in this sermon today. Many people think I have to be up front. I have to be doing something great. I have to be doing something awesome. I have to be preaching and teaching. But you know what? You can hold the door of the church at church for somebody. You can welcome them in the name of Jesus to your church. You don't have to write an article. You don't have to do a podcast. You don't have to preach a sermon. But you know what you can do? You can love your family. You can love your spouse. You can live sacrificially for Christ. And, and, and it just by loving your family, loving your spouse, that's one of the most countercultural things that you can do. By repenting of your sin, by turning away from it, by fighting against the injustice and speaking up against the injustice of our age, inside the church and outside of it, against topics such as you know, racism and sex trafficking, abuse, and so on. You may not make a, a massive big difference, but the question isn't how the quantity of how many people you reach. It's the motivation. What's your motivation? Is it the glory of God? Or is it yourself? Today I pray that your motivation will be the glory of God. Because, you know, as Christians, we will be rewarded. Our text clearly says that. Both small and great. And you know what? That's encouraging because it tells us whether we have a huge ministry or a small ministry, whether we are, whether we, you know, clean dishes or a janitor or whatever we do, as Paul says to the Colossians, we are to do it all to the glory of God. And all before the face of God. Because he sees and he knows how we will either be judged for our unbelief and cast into the lake of fire. Or we will be, by the grace of God, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, we will be rewarded for fearing his name, both small and great. All for the glory of the God of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given to us to open your word. This is living and active. It penetrates into the heart of the matter. And Lord, these things are not just matters, just trite matters that we can cast aside. These are matters of worship. So we thank you, Lord, as our text does. We thank Give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. The nations rage, your wrath has come, came, the time for the dead to be judged. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. We give thanks to you, Lord, that you have come in the person of Christ, that you have bled and died in our place and for our sin, and that you've risen again on the third day, 
And even now you are a high priest and mediator of the new covenant. We give thanks to you, O Lord, that, and that you are the soon returning king who will do all and act in accordance with your revealed character. We give thanks to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.